stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In chiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, the grace that you have poured out on your people, Lord, um, all the ways that you provide for your people, um, namely through your son, God, and um, sending him to um, take on the punishment for our sins, Lord, um, to live the perfect life in our place that we might know you um, in this life and might um, know you eternally, God. Lord, would you be with us now, Lord, all those who are physically in this building and all those who are watching um, the live stream, God, would you um, allow your spirit to work, uh, to convict, to encourage, Lord, um, would you allow each and every person um, who's listening to your word this morning uh, to be changed by it, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're continuing our series through the Psalms, and we find ourselves in a psalm here, Psalm chapter 10, that might make some of us feel a little uncomfortable. The psalmist is crying out to God, he's real, he's raw with God, because he feels the pain of this world. No Christian, 
No person, I should say, is immune to pain in this life. If one thing is guaranteed about life in a fallen world, it's that you will feel pain. And I obviously don't just mean physical pain, though that will be there. We're talking about emotional, mental suffering because of this broken world in which we live. So the question is not, will I experience pain? The question is, how will I deal with it when it comes? People deal with pain in this life in different ways. Some just get angry and bitter, and they feel like they need to stay angry and bitter uh, because it might alleviate some of the sorrow that they're feeling and give them a sense of justice of the wrong they've felt and experienced and the pain they're experiencing, the justice, the injustice that comes with it. Others, instead of anger and sorrow, they might remain in a state of wallowing and self-pity and even fall into despair. They allow pain to consume them to the point where they just can't function. Still, you have others that deal with their pain by just trying to take their mind off of it through some form of escape. They busy themselves with work, a hobby, or relationships, or binge-watching Netflix, just so they don't have to deal with the pain that they're experiencing. And then you still have others that try to relieve their pain by seeking comfort in places that won't ultimately give them such comfort. They eat excessively. They look for affirmation on Facebook or other places. They sleep a lot. Maybe they drink too much alcohol. But there's a last category of people that I wonder if it's all too common in the church. Yes, those other ones can be common, but this one seems to be common, especially in the church in the West. People who deal with their pain not by binge-watching TV or by oversleeping or by excessive drinking, but those who deal with their pain by trying to cover it up with phony happiness. So many people try to deal with their pain this way. Put on a plastered smile. They force themselves to be happy and just try to think on the bright side of things. And they, they jump. They're, they're trying to jump too quickly to a happy place. Churches have fallen prey to these sorts of ways of dealing with pain. Especially that last one. I mean, just think about how, how many people in churches try to help others who are experiencing pain. Often it's not, it, it doesn't come across as very sympathetic, uh, empathetic, very loving. I think many people mean well, but we have this instinct to want to try to provide a quick fix to the pain that people are feeling. And so they might give sort of comments that have this cheered up, it's not that bad kind of approach, whether they realize it or not. Maybe they'll say, okay, yes, you lost your job, but hey, God works all things together for good. A loved one died. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, but hey, they're in a better place. Or maybe we'd even say something like, at least it's not as bad as it could be. Right? And those things maybe are true. And, and it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to say those things in the right time. And, and if we do it in a way that's loving and empathetic, what I'm pushing against is the way in which we, we try to too quickly resolve people's pain. And it ends up coming across as very unloving. We have a tendency to provide, seek to provide quick fixes to our own and others' pain rather than realizing this all-important truth. 
The process of processing pain is a good thing. That process of you or someone else having to go through the process of processing pain is a means God often uses for our growth in Christ. The church in many ways has lost this practice of the process of processing pain. And this practice is called lament. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. It is a prayer, probably, of King David, of one who is in pain and is trying to process that pain by, by talking to God about this, this paradox that they feel. The psalmist feels a paradox between the promises of God and the pain he's experiencing. It doesn't seem to line up, those two things. How do we make sense? How do you make sense out of what feels like contradictions between what God promises you and what you're going through? How do you, how do, you do that when it doesn't seem to line up? If God is good, then why would he allow so much bad in my life? If God is in control, then why does it look like everything's out of control? If God really loves me, then why didn't he protect me when this happened? If God actually hates wickedness and injustice, why does it seem so many wicked people are living it up and not experiencing the consequences of their actions? Lament is the language that we must learn that bridges this gap between what we're experiencing and what we know is true about God. On the one side, we see pain. On the other side, we see God's promises, and the two don't seem to line up. What bridges the gap? One lost practice in the church is the, the discipline of lament. One person says it like this. Finding an explanation or a quick solution for grief, while an admirable goal, can circumvent the opportunity afforded in lament to give a, a, a person permission to wrestle with sorrow instead of rushing to end it. Walking through sorrow without understanding and embracing the God-given song of lament can stunt the grieving process. Lament is the language that we must learn in order to bridge the gap we feel between our pain and God's promises. That same author says this, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promises of God's goodness. So, I don't know how, if any of you have heard this concept of lament or, or understood it to be a Christian discipline. You do realize that a third of the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. The, the Psalms were the songbook of God's covenant people in the Old Testament. This is what they sang when they gathered together. A third of them were songs of lament. I mean, think of how different that is compared to the many songs that are sung in churches today. Many songs are, are chipper and happy as if everything's good and dandy. Well, what about that person who's really struggling, who just lost their job? What about that person who's really struggling after a third miscarriage? What about that person who's really struggling in their singleness? They long to be married, but they can't find someone, or there's no one approaching them, or, or whatever. What do those people sing about? Do they just try to have a cheer up, it'll get better soon kind of attitude? 
and sing just chipper and happy songs as if life's all good when it's not? We need to have room for lament in the church. Don't be scared of it. It's a good thing. It's a good discipline to learn to lament. So I want to teach us how to lament. This, this sermon may feel a little bit different than a normal one where I'm kind of going verse by verse. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about the meaning of the passage, no doubt. But I want to use this psalm as a guide to teach us what it looks like to lament. Because this psalm is really good for that. It gives us the four main elements of lament. And they're this. Number one, cry out to God. Number two, complain to God. I'll explain that in a second. <laughs> number three, call on God to act. And number four, choose to trust. So those are the four main elements. Think of them like panels on a bridge, right? I said lament is this bridge that, that it bridges the gap between what we're feeling, what we're going through versus what we know about God and what is true about God. How, how do we bridge that gap? We got to learn to lament. And there's four parts to this bridge. Now, now just be mindful. When I say this bridge or there's four parts to it, I don't mean, hey, steps one, two, three, four, life's good. Just do it and it'll be, you'll be fine. Not at all. This is an ongoing thing. Lament is something that you will need to do. Perhaps some of you may need to do that daily for a while until you're into a place where you're really trusting the Lord. Uh, it's also, lament is also a discipline we must learn where we'll come back to it again and again and again. So this is not a quick and easy fix kind of approach. It teaches us the discipline of lament for life. So we begin with the first element, cry out to God. Look at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Do you hear how honest his cry is? This is not what we hear in typical Christianity. We are so accustomed to having a put-together, life-is-good Facebook and Instagram Christianity. Nothing's ever wrong, everything's great, life may be hard, but hey, I'm trusting God, right? I'm good. Even, even when we're struggling on the inside to trust in God, we want to present it as if we are on the outside. And we should strive to trust Him. But I want to push against this tendency that many Christians have where they do not leave room to struggle with and wrestle with the deep troubles in their soul. The tendency that many Christians have not to allow even one another to express the rawness of what they're feeling. Do, let me just ask you, do you think the psalmist here actually believes in his head that God is far away? Do you think he actually believes that God is hiding. We, we know he doesn't actually believe that. So why is he stating this out loud? Is he not simply expressing what it feels like? What his experience feels like to him? Lord, it really seems like you're indifferent to what's going on around me. Lord, it, it, it feels right now like you're a million miles away. 
Lord, it seems like you just, it seems like you just back off as soon as trouble hits. Does that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> that someone would pray this to God? How dare they say such a thing? Do we leave room for this kind of rawness? He's crying out to God in a very honest way. And I would propose to you the psalmist is not sinning. It is. Make note. It is sinful to be angry with God. I've heard some people say, it's okay to be angry with God. He's a big boy. He can handle your anger towards him. That's not the issue. Of course God can handle your anger towards him. The issue is what anger towards God is saying. Anger, by definition, says that is wrong. And if you're angry at God, you're saying, God, you've done something wrong. You are wrong. And that is sinful. So it is sinful to be angry with God. But it is not sinful to ask him why when it doesn't look like things are making sense. You have a category for that? Not being sinfully angry, but really perplexed. I don't get it. Just letting your emotion out to the Lord. I don't get it. That's where you need to start. Anytime you're feeling the suffering of this world and your heart is wrestling with what you're going through, where your heart may not be in a place where you are confidently trusting the Lord in that moment, strong and, and in an unswerving way, start here. Learn to lament. Cry out to God. That's the first step. In fact, I would say crying out to God is the first step of a demonstration that you are trusting in God. This is the way one person says it. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. And so what would be the opposite in this instance of unbelief? It'd be talking to him, wouldn't it? Even if your emotions are raw and you are utterly confused. Here's the way another person put it. The question of why God stands, af stands far away in verse 1 does not stem from doubting God, but from believing that he is reliable and just. It is this faith that leads to perplexity over how God can tolerate such conditions among his people. Do you see that? It's, it's out of faith that we're perplexed with what's going on in our world. Because we, God, you say this, but this is happening, and it doesn't look like they're lining up. I don't get it. Why are you standing far away? Why do you hide yourself in trouble? Now I want to ask, what are these conditions that the psalmist is perplexed about? The psalmist is, is trusting the Lord in a sense by crying out to God because there's certain conditions, things going on, things that he sees that just don't line up. What are they? This is where we come to the next point, element number two, that we need to complain to God. And that's what the psalmist does in verses 2 to 11. He lays out all of these conditions, all of these, all this, this situation that he's in that just is really bothersome to him. And so he complains to God. Now, let me qualify that immediately. <laughs> when we hear the word complain... Usually we think of a little child whining for something that he or she wants. And I don't mean that. I'm not talking about, when I say complain to God, I don't mean whine to him for not getting your way. I'm talking about 
laying bare, laying out bare before him why you're feeling what you're feeling. You cry out to him and then you just lay it bare. Tell him about what you're seeing in life that doesn't make sense. God, you say this, you promise this, this is happening, they don't line up. Lay it out before God. That's what the psalmist does in verses 2 to 11. So let's, let's work through some of these things here. If you look at verse 2, verses 2 to 4, notice what bothers him there. It says, verse 2, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. How can we summarize what the psalmist is bothered by here? These wicked people are completely arrogant. You see that? Boast, arrogance. Where is their arrogance coming from? There's no God. I don't think these people are intellectual atheists. You know what I mean by that? I don't think they have a convictional belief that a God doesn't exist. There are other Psalms, like Psalm 14, that, that seems to indicate that. There are some who, obviously that's the case, some don't believe a God exists. That's not what's going on with them. They're, they're saying, essentially... Yeah, if this God does exist, doesn't matter because we're getting away with everything. They are arrogant. They are boastful. Look at verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So you can see it there. They don't think that they're going to have to pay for their actions. They think they are exempt from God's judgment for their injustices. Consider more of their injustice in their speech. Verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. So his, his words, this wicked person's words, are ones that just tear people down. It's interesting if you think about all of the other vices of this wicked person, how he uh, tears down the poor and he seems to do injustice by, by being greedy and taking from them and, and even not having any value for life, it seems. Seems like the, maybe even murderers. The psalmist still feels the need to talk about his speech. Our speech is powerful. What we say to others matters. And it is of grave injustice the way we tear others down, as James puts it, who are made in the image of God. The psalmist is not having it. It is unjust to belittle people in our speech. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. Isn't that interesting? He's a murderer. Yet, verse 7, he still cares about this guy's speech. Verse 8, second part, his eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. Verse 9, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor and seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. That imagery of the lion there in verse 9, you can picture it, right? It's very helpful imagery. 
You, you ever watch National Geographic? The lion in the thicket of the grass just slowly w going up to his prey, an antelope or something, and then just boom, sees it, goes straight for the jugular, takes that thing out so quickly. That's what's going on here. The psalmist is saying, this is how many wicked men around me, God, God, many wicked men around me, he's talking to God, many of them act like a lion that just devours people without even knowing it. Not just people, vulnerable people. That's who they're going after. The oppressed, the poor, the afflicted. Now, why is he so upset about these things? And we should be bothered by such wickedness, shouldn't we? That's not the main reason why the psalmist is so upset. He's not so bothered merely by the fact that wicked people are doing wicked things. He's bothered by the fact that it looks like they're getting away with it. That's what bothers him so much. If you see that there in verse 11, he, this wicked person, says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. The wicked is not experiencing consequences for their sin. They seem to be getting away with it, and so they continue in their wickedness. Isn't that how it works? In our neighborhood, what has felt like a very safe and, and a neighborhood that is peaceful and pleasant, we've had in the past several weeks several break-ins to cars in our neighborhood. And maybe related to what's going on right now, people are antsy, I don't know. Um, but nevertheless, it's still wrong. And, and one car even got stolen in our neighborhood. And it seems what happened is they, these, uh, got them on video, it's a group of teenagers. It seems they started off kind of small, just checking door handles, getting in and out real quick. And the, the more and more they didn't get caught, their boldness increased. Such that we ended up seeing a video of someone in our neighborhood who has this massive floodlight on their driveway. And these, these guys are just going through there and like it's nothing. And they haven't gotten caught. And that's what happens. The boldness of the wicked increases when they think they can get away with their sin. And that's what's happening in this psalm. Justice is being trampled upon. And there is this discrepancy between whom the psalmist knows God is versus what he sees is happening around him. God is a just God who hates evil. Okay, why all this evil? How do we make sense of this? Why do you stand so far away, Lord? Why do you hide your face in times of trouble? Can you see why he opened the psalm the way he did? You ever feel this? There? I know many of us have a deep desire for justice, and that's a good thing because we're made in the image of God. So when we see the world and we, we look out and it, it, it looks like justice is being trampled upon, it bothers us, as it should. However, so often we do not respond to injustice in a just way. We try to take justice in our own hands, maybe. We try to act too hastily on things. We maybe let bitterness and anger rule us. We, one thing that we often fail to do is simply lament. <laughs> lament is not merely for when you're going through a hard time. Lament is also for when you see, when, when you're bothered by the injustices that you see. 
learn the language of lament. Complain to God. Don't whine. Complain. Here's the way one person put it. You don't have permission to vent self-centered rage at God when life has not turned out as you planned. You do not have a right to be angry with God. That is always wrong. But there's a place for a kind of complaining that is biblical. What is it? What kind of complaining is biblical? We saw it here. It's when you lay out your sincere confusion before God and say, I don't get it. It's not lining up. God, but I would propose to you as well that true biblical complaining to God doesn't linger there. Godly complaining doesn't stay in the state of complaining. You're moving somewhere. You're moving towards a resolution. And that leads us to element number three. Call on God to act. Call on God to act. Don't just cry out to him. Don't just complain to him. Plead with him to do something. Look at verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the, afflict, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to the, to the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Pretty strong words, aren't they? Arise, O Lord, in verse 12. In other words, come out of what looks like hiding. That's what he said in verse 1. Are you hiding? Now he's saying, arise. Come near from what looks like you standing far off. Arise. Do something. What does he want God to do? Notice verse 15. He says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Now what do you do with that? <laughs> break the arm of the wicked. Is the psalmist asking God to put the wicked into a cast for six to eight weeks? Right? We, we know he's not asking God that. But it still sounds like some sort of retribution. It sounds like some sort of payback, doesn't it? That's, when I first read this, I'm like, is he asking God to like Get these wicked people back. Let them feel some pain for the pain that we're feeling because of their injustices. Break their arm. Is that what he's saying? As much as some of us might want him to be saying that, I don't think that's what he's saying. The word arm in the Bible, when it's used metaphorically like this, it's used in reference to power and strength. Think of the arm of God in Scripture. Your right hand, God, do something, right? The arm of God in Scripture is a reference to his power and strength. And so when it says here, break the wicked's arm, it's saying not, put them in a cast for six to eight weeks, it's saying strip them of their power to keep doing these wicked, wicked deeds. 
take away any strength that they have that allows them to continue to commit such unjust acts. That's what he's getting at. Break their arm. Now notice on what basis he's calling the Lord to act in such a way. Did you catch the hint of trust there in verse 4? Verse 14, I should say. Notice what he says, verse 14. But you do see. That's in response to the wicked saying God doesn't see. And the psalmist says, but Lord, you do see. You note mischief and vexation. That you may take it into your hands. In other words, you're not, you're not indifferent, God. I know you're not. Indifferent to the evils that are going on around us, even though it feels like sometimes you're hiding yourself. You do see. You do, and you will take it into your own hands, which means for us, by the way, that we don't have to take justice into our own hands. Romans 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Oh, how often we fall into sin as individuals when we seek to take justice into our own hands. Now, certainly it doesn't mean that you don't seek any form of justice in this life, but it certainly does mean that you don't seek a sort of, sort of re, like revenging, vengeful kind of justice. Leave it to God. I guarantee you the punishment that God will give to those who are unjust towards you is much greater punishment that you could ever inflict upon them. And then put it like this. The punishment of hell that unbelievers will receive for their injustices, you can't improve upon that. And the punishment that Jesus took on the cross for anyone who trusts in him, even those who were unjust towards you, the punishment that Jesus took on the cross for them in their place, you can't improve on that. Don't try to improve on God's perfect justice. So how do, we, how do we move there? The last element is to trust this about God. we got to trust that God is a God who is just. How do we do that? Element number four is this. It's a choice. You choose to trust God. Notice the change of tune in the last few verses of this psalm. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his, from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Sound different than the rest of the psalm? I know who you are, God. That's what he's saying. And who is he declaring God to be? Well, first of all, verse 16, he's king. He's the eternal king. The Lord is king forever and ever, meaning God does indeed rule. He even, even when it looks like he's not on his throne and these wicked people are running rampant and it seems like they're the ones who are in charge, no, 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 no. God is still king forever and ever. He has not stepped down from his throne and he doesn't plan to. We got to remember that. Not only is God the king, 
who rules in justice. He is also the compassionate father. Look at verse 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Verse 18, you do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. You, you, you hear this balanced view of God? He's the, the just king who rules. But he's also compassionate toward those who are vulnerable, those who are oppressed, those who are afflicted. You think of the imagery of fatherlessness. These people who don't have that male protection in their life, these children who don't have that, God is that for the oppressed. I want you to consider what the psalmist is doing here, okay? Think about what he's doing in terms of how he's lamenting. Specifically in this last element where he's choosing to trust God. How is he doing that? Think about what he's doing that's helping him to choose to trust in God. The psalmist is preaching truth about God to God. So often in some of our circles, you often hear the importance of preaching truth to yourself. Great. It ain't enough. You've got to preach truth about God to him. Get him in that conversation. That's what he's doing. Preaching truth about God to God. Why do you stand so far off, God? And your heart is feeling this. Why are you hiding? The way you fight to trust, the way you fight to choose to trust God is by preaching truth about God to God. You're king. I know, God. I know you are king. I know it. I know your heart, God. You're compassionate towards the weak and vulnerable. I know that about you, God. You ever done this? Try it. Do it. To say that it helps is a massive understatement. You gotta do it. Talk to God about what you're feeling and then preach truth to him about him. And if you don't, what will happen is you will just remain on this hamster wheel of misery until you get to this last step. If you just keep crying out, and keep complaining, and, and keep even calling God to act and fail to get to this last part, you'll be on that hamster, hamster wheel of misery. It's not enough to call on him to act. It's not enough to cry out to him. It's not enough to complain to him. You've got to move forward. Otherwise, you'll stay anxious. You'll stay miserable, you'll stay in despair, you'll stay in a, a state of unrest. Choose to trust him. And I understand, this is a really hard thing for many of us. For many Christians, it is hard to trust God. Why do you think that is? Certainly different reasons. But one common reason I've found for why it is so hard for some to trust God is this. It feels too darn risky. It's too much of a risk to trust him. To let go of my anxiety feels too risky. To let go of my bitterness and my anger is too risky. It feels so much safer to remain in this position I'm in where I'm holding on to this and not giving it over to God. Some of us would rather remain miserable than to trust in God because it feels too risky. 
And herein lies the lie that we cling to that keeps us from trusting God. It's this. It's more secure not to trust God than to trust him. That's a very common lie among Christians. It's safer not to trust him. If I trust him, some bad might happen, so I'm just not going to trust him. As if that changes anything. The, the lie, it's safer not to trust him. That is a lie. You know why it's a lie? Because the most insecure people in the world are those who are not trusting God. Put it positively, right? The people who are most at peace, those who have most rest for their souls, those who feel most secure and safe in life, in their, in their hearts, in their inner person, those who feel secure are those who are trusting in God. I mean, just think about your own experience, right? Your own experience in this regard. Think about when you have in life, chosen not to trust the Lord. How have you felt? How'd it go for you? It doesn't go over well, does it? You think your heart was at rest? Was your heart experiencing peace? Did you feel secure? You know you didn't, Christian. You know it. And yet we keep believing the lie. Yet look back on those times in your life when it was hard, yet you had this resolve to trust the Lord. How was it? Didn't take away the pain. But you, I guarantee you felt most secure, safest. So I would say then, let us work really hard to rest by trusting in God. We need to learn to lament. Many Christians are uncomfortable with this discipline because we have, I think it's a shallow view of the Christian life. We, we view the Christian life as this kind of chipper and, and happy and everything's just swell. And it's not. For those of us who, who may not be yet convinced that lament is indeed an appropriate response for Christians to life's pain, consider Jesus. Did Jesus ever lament? I mean, this is the perfect son of God. Did he lament? Think about the various elements of lament. Did Jesus ever cry out to God? You know he did. I, mean, I don't have to give specific examples. You know Jesus cried out to God. That's element number one. Number two, did Jesus ever complain? In the sense that I've been saying it up to this point. Did he ever lay out bare what he's feeling before his heavenly father? He didn't whine. But what did Jesus say as he was hanging on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that's from? That's a quote from Psalm 22, which is a psalm of, guess what, lament. Jesus is quoting from a song of lament as a way of lamenting on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Now, the reality is, Jesus wasn't just feeling that in that moment. That was reality. In a very real sense, the father turned his back on the son to, so that the son would absorb the full wrath of the father. And the son was being treated 
as if he sinned. The son was taking upon himself our guilt, our punishment for our sin. And so he, he rightly said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was in a very real sense abandoned by the father on the cross. Do you know why? It's because it's so that you would not be abandoned by God for all eternity. The cry of Jesus, that cry of lament on the cross, was the cry that you will not have to experience for eternity in hell because Jesus took it for you if you're trusting him. That cry of lament. How about element number three? Did Jesus ever call God the Father to act? Remember before he went to the cross, what did he say? If possible, take this cup from me, referring to the cross, referring to the, the cup of God's wrath. If it's possible, if salvation can be accomplished in any other way than me going to the cross and absorbing your wrath, let it be. Did the Father answer that prayer? We are going to spend an eternity in heaven praising God for not answering that prayer. Sometimes that could help us trust God and why sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers. Very often for, not, not very often, always for our good. Always. So element number four, did Jesus choose to trust? Remember what he said right before he went to the cross. He said, not my will, but yours be done. No one lamented better than Jesus. So look to him. Follow in his footsteps. Lament. Now let me just close with a few implications as we think about this discipline of lament. Number one, giving God the silent treatment is detrimental to your own soul. Not crying out to God, not coming to him thinking that you're in a safer place by giving him the cold shoulder and the silent treatment, you're hurting yourself. It's detrimental to your own soul. you got to talk to him. Start there. Do it. Do it today. Sit down. Take out your journal. I'd, I'd encourage writing your prayers down. It helps me to focus. For some of you, maybe it's not helpful, but just lay bare. Get into a quiet place. Maybe get to a place if you can where no one else can hear you and talk out loud. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to cry out to God. That's where it starts. The silent treatment kills your own soul. Number two, you can be real and even raw with God. Think of an analogy like this. Don't you, aren't your best friends those whom you can just be yourself with? Surely there's more to a best friend than that should be. But those best friends where you don't, you don't feel like you have to have a guard up and, 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 and you know, make sure that you say everything in a perfect way and, and your behavior is, is just perfect. I'm not saying you just, you just sin around your friends. I'm just saying you just let your guard down and be yourself. You don't have to worry about them critiquing every little thing about you, right? It's a safe place to be real. I, I love friends like that. Because they love you, warts and all. 
How much more is this the case with God? If you don't view God as a safe place to be real and raw with, you don't know God, at least not as you ought. You know him as that compassionate father. God is compassionate towards us. He is compassionate towards our weaknesses. Let your guard down. God will not disown you. Be raw. Lay it bare before him. Finally, number three. Change will not happen. True and lasting change will not happen until you choose to trust God. You might say, I just, how do I do this? I, I, I can't just like flip a switch and start trusting God. How does, this, how does this work? You know what my answer is? Learn to lament. Go and buy a journal and start writing down prayers of lament. That's what the psalmists did. They wrote down their prayers. Helpful for them. I propose to be helpful for us. Walk this bridge of lament again and again and again until you find your heart truly believing the words that you're preaching to God. And then when you fall back into a place where you're, you're, you're struggling again, start over. Do it again. I guarantee you're going to need it again. This is not a four steps to a better life kind of process. This is an ongoing discipline that I think has just been lost among Christians. So may we, as a church, not just as individuals, but I pray that we as a church would learn the language of lament for the good of our souls and the good of this church. Amen. Let's pray together.